So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode includes discussion of suicide, so it may not be suitable for everyone. When you live in an era of so-called reconciliation, what are you supposed to do with an institution as entrenched as the police? From the beginning, the police have acted as enforcers of colonialism. They still retain the same British colonial symbols and insignia, a constant reminder of past injustices. They're viewed by the original inhabitants of the land not as preservers of law and order, but as an occupying army. And who can blame them? The police leadership denies that discrimination and police violence is a real problem. Many individual cops hold far-right views and even belong to hate groups. And when they assault or kill someone, they're more likely to rise up through the ranks than to be prosecuted. So if reconciliation is the goal, what do you do about the police? I'm of course talking about Northern Ireland. Good evening. A historic day at Stormont. After two years of talks and after a generation of bloodshed and decades of division and acrimony, George Mitchell ushers in what the whole island hopes will be a new era of peace. In the 1990s, unionists and republicans were finally engaging in peace talks aimed at bringing the troubles to an end. But one of the biggest sticking points was the issue of policing. The Good Friday Agreement was not able to be implemented because the two communities did not agree on the provision of security. That's Christian Luprecht, a professor at the Royal Military College and the director of the Institute of Intergovernmental Relations in the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. The Royal Ulster Constabulary was deeply mistrusted by Catholics in Northern Ireland. Its ranks were filled with Protestant Unionists, many of whom belonged to the Protestant supremacist Orange Order. The police themselves armed right-wing militias and were involved in terrorist activity. And so it was actually, interestingly enough, a Canadian and his counterpart, who's originally from Northern Ireland but now teaches in the United States, John McGarry and Brendan O'Leary, that were tasked with breaking the impasse. And one of the key suggestions, one of the key recommendations, and ultimately all the recommendations they put forward were adopted, was a complete revamp of the police force. What they proposed was radical. In effect, they recommended tearing down the Royal Ulster Constabulary, one of the most oppressive colonial institutions, and building something new, the police service of Northern Ireland. 
And that included, for instance, getting rid of the entire senior leadership of the police force. They retired out the entire senior leadership because there were serious trust issues with the communities. The old British uniforms and insignia were retired. New governance structures were put into place. Thousands of police officers were fired all at once and then given a chance to reapply. And an affirmative action policy was instituted to ensure that an equal number of Catholics and Protestants were on the force. And they really built a modern professional police service from the ground up in a new institution that really enjoys today the trust and confidence of both communities in a society that is still deeply divided. Make no mistake, this was not simply a symbolic change. This is ultimately what made the Good Friday Agreement sustainable. The RCMP, the OPP, and many other Canadian police forces still retained the DNA of the Royal Irish Constabulary, which they were modeled off of. So are there any lessons we can learn from the Irish experience, from their attempt at reconciliation? The first thing to appreciate is that previous efforts at incremental reform had failed. Before the 1990s, there'd been attempts to change the RUC bit by bit, change it from within. But it took a sharp break with the past for real progress to be made. I think there are a lot of interesting similarities here in terms of reconciliation in Canada. We've been trying this for a hundred some odd years, and it doesn't seem to be working particularly well, either for the police force nor for the local communities. We need to ask ourselves, are we at a moment of crisis where we need revolutionary change the way we saw in Northern Ireland? Or are we in a time of challenge, but where we might be better served through evolutionary change? Over the last year in Canada, a number of radical solutions have been proposed. We should defund the police. We should disband the police entirely. But we must also contend with the fundamental paradox at the heart of our discussions around crime and policing of indigenous and minority communities in Canada. It comes up in every single report and inquiry and commission on the topic. Indigenous people are both drastically over-policed and desperately under-protected. They are simultaneously more likely to be the victims of police violence and criminal violence. Look no further than the more than a thousand indigenous women and girls who have been murdered or gone missing over the last few decades. Alongside defunding and disbanding the police, there's a third radical option to consider. Devolve the police. Give indigenous communities control over the cops. And there's one place in Canada that has been trying just that on a scale never before attempted in this country. For three decades, much of northern Ontario has been engaged in an unprecedented experiment in policing. It's called the Nishnabe Aski Police Service, and the idea is simple. The old colonial police forces shouldn't be policing indigenous territory. Instead, indigenous people should police themselves. Since 1994, the Nishnabe Aski Police Service has patrolled an area larger than France with less than 200 officers. 
It was created as a response to the racist and colonial policing of the RCMP and the OPP. This 25-year-old experiment gives us a potential roadmap for the future of policing. But the problems that have plagued it from the beginning may also force us to consider even more radical solutions. I'm Arshi Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. NAPS is the largest indigenous police force in Canada, and it's, it's not even close. Just in terms of the number of officers they have, the territory they cover, it's, it's remarkable. My name's Kyle Edwards. I'm Anishinaabe from the Lake Manitoba First Nation, and I'm a journalist and editor at Native News Online in Palo Alto, California. Before he moved to the States, Edwards was a reporter at McLean's. And back in 2018, he went up to northern Ontario to do a story about the Anishinaabe ASCII Police Service. It was the first time I'd ever been to northern Ontario. I wasn't sure what to expect. It's a stunning landscape. I don't think a lot of people from, from Southern Ontario are really familiar with that that part of the country. And it's a region just surrounded by bodies of water. It looks like, you know, when you're flying above everything, it sort of looks like a like an archipelago in a lot of ways. It's just like forest and like small lakes, like everywhere, as far as you can see. And you really quickly understand that this is difficult terrain. I always grew up hearing the phrase like winter road. Being a native person, you always have like relatives who have to, or people you know that have to travel through by winter road when the water freezes over in order to like get to say Winnipeg or like Thunder Bay. And once you actually get up there and see it for yourself, you quickly realize, okay, wow, this is a crazy place. One of the first people Edwards talked to was a longtime NAPS officer named Merle Loon. And immediately Edwards noticed he was different from other cops that he'd met. His first language is Anishinaabe Moan. You know, he was someone who, who attended one of the last remaining residential schools in Canada, and he's only 45 years old. And so that alone was like really striking to me and it sort of surprised me in a lot of ways that you have cops that could come into this police force and actually speak the language that is spoken in those communities you know, one of the first things he said to me when we spoke in Thunder Bay was like, he said, I hated cops when growing up. I never trusted them. It was that kind of sentiment that NAPS was created to combat. As Canadian settlers moved westward in the early days of Confederation, northern Ontario was policed by the RCMP. In 1976, the Ontario Provincial Police took over jurisdiction. Though the RCMP was gone, many Indigenous people viewed the OPP as just another colonial police force. Everyone remembers sort of Indian agents and mounted police, you know, knocking on their doors, taking kids away to residential school. So this is like 
these historical things are not lost on many Native people. There were like many, you know, long lasting wounds and a deep sense of distrust toward cops. Many OPP officers were accused of racism and misconduct. Tensions reached their height in 1987 when an Anishinaabe man named Stanley Shingabus was beaten and left permanently paralyzed by three OPP officers. The officers were charged, but all of them were acquitted. Local First Nation leaders demanded an inquest. The provincial government appointed a committee which recommended the creation of an indigenous-led police force. Eventually, the Nishnabiaski First Nation reached an agreement with both the Ontario and federal governments to create this new force. Funding would be split between the province and the feds. The Nishnabiaski Police Service was being cast as a major step forward towards recognition of Indigenous sovereignty. Here's Christian Luprecht again. The idea is, in principle, the right idea to make sure that local indigenous communities have an opportunity to have a police service with which they identify that disproportionately recruits from their own communities where they can see themselves reflected and represented, not just in terms of the individuals, but also in terms of the values of policing that represents. And so that police service also operates under a special legal statute that is different from the Police Services Act that applies elsewhere in Ontario. But even during that moment of optimism in 1994, when NAPS became fully operational, there were doubters. The challenges that new police service had to face were immense. Crime rates were high. There was a historical distrust of cops. Almost every household had a gun for hunting. And the territory they were charged with policing was larger than all of France. At the time, there was a lot of skepticism about what NAPS would actually achieve. Some believed that NAPS would ultimately be set up to fail because there wasn't a whole lot of support behind them financially. When Kyle Edwards visited Nishnabeaski territory 25 years later, it appeared that the doubters had been right. His first stop was the detachment at Sachiko Lake, a community about 400 kilometers north of Sioux Lookout and not far from the Manitoba border. When we arrived at the police detachment, it had a blue tarp on top of its roof because, like, it just didn't have a, a roof that could repel water. It constantly leaked. Edwards was accompanied by a NAPS officer named Charlie Chapman, who was from the Sachiko Lake First Nation. I remember we were in his truck, and we pull up to the police detachment, and I see the blue tarp, and I, I ask him, like, is are you guys, you know, building a new roof, like, replacing it or whatever. And he says, no, it's just, it's just leaks. It doesn't work. And the police attachment is basically like a house. It's basically a, an old decrepit house converted into a, converted into a police station. They went inside to take a tour of the detachment. It was a short tour. He saw some desks, dilapidated furniture, and a very narrow hallway that led to the holding cells. It's like a jail with bars running horizontally. And he says, this isn't up to code either. They don't have bars anymore in normal jail cells because people can really hurt themselves in various ways. When he asked Constable Chapman about his work, he could hear the weariness in his voice. He spoke about just like a, like a love for his community. He was a big fisherman and he, he loved living there. He, he had no real plans to leave. 
but you can tell he was like sort of beaten down a little bit by the workload. He had the, you know, the typical eight to 10 hours or whatever shift, but if he had to arrest someone and send them down to Thunder Bay for whatever, an eight to 10 shift sort of turned into 50 hours. So he would just be going nonstop for like two days straight. And in many ways, that's been the story of NAPS since its founding. It's an extremely vast expanse of territory that's being covered by that police service, often in teams of a very small number of members, often in communities that face significant challenges and at rates of pay that don't necessarily match those of police services elsewhere. In its first 10 years, NAP struggled to get a working police force off the ground. To start, recruiting people was difficult. Even today, there are few programs specifically targeted at training Indigenous police officers. To the best of my knowledge, there's only one program in Canada at the community college level in Saskatoon, as far as I know, that, for instance, is deliberately targeted at attracting members from Indigenous communities and making sure that you put them through a specifically targeted community college program that then makes them competitive to be recruited into police services. At the outset, NAPS was also under-resourced. Officers were paid less than their OPP equivalents and little money was set aside for building the necessary capital infrastructure like detachments. First Nation leaders petitioned both the Ontario and federal governments for the necessary funding. A decade after NAPS was launched, only one of its 35 detachments met minimum building standards. Cops complained about rodent infestations, walls and roofs that were falling to bits, and a lack of working toilets. Prisoners were often forced to use a bucket, and the police would have to clean up after them. One of the biggest concerns was fire. In 2006, that fear was realized. In January of that year, two 20-year-old men, Ricardo Wellesley and Jamie Goodwin, were being detained in a Naps holding cell in Kosheshawan First Nation when a fire broke out. David Nikoji was a NAPS officer who was in the detachment when the fire started. Here he is speaking to APTN years later. I can hear yelling and screaming, running around in the office. So with that, I, I couldn't see anything. The, the smoke had gone a uh, uh, lot thicker and, and, and black. And on my way in, maybe about six feet from the door, the, uh, the door shut on me behind me from the, uh, the pressure of the smoke. I can he- still hear the, uh, the two young men uh, crying for help, yelling for help. We managed to uh, open the door in the back with, with an axe. And uh, when the door swung open, and I, I can still see the, uh, one of the young men that was on my, my right side was, was still alive and, and uh, still moving around in the fire and trying to he's trying to reach for us but he wasn't saying anything but he was just moving around and kind of reaching out his hand for for help but we couldn't go further and uh because of the thick smoke and and dense heat now that was uh that was coming towards a doorway you think of it every day and it's it's something that um you know after seeing young people die in a fire screaming for help and there's nothing you can do. 
Both of the young men trapped in the cells, Ricardo Wellesley and Jamie Goodwin, died of smoke inhalation. An inquest found that the detachment had no working fire detectors, extinguishers, or sprinklers. The mattresses prisoners had to sleep on were extremely flammable, and the lock system made it difficult to open the cell doors in the case of an emergency. NAPS officers had been registering complaints about all of this in the years leading up to the fire. The inquest jury blamed the deaths of the two young men on a chronic lack of funding for Indigenous police services. First Nations in Northern Ontario lobbied the Ontarian and Canadian governments for the $34 million it would take to upgrade their facilities, but they were ignored. Alongside the dangerous facilities, NAPS has been chronically understaffed. Officers are forced to go on patrol and take calls by themselves, and the closest backup is often a flight away. Kyle Edwards remembers talking to Joseph Angies, a NAPS officer. Joseph Angies is from the Wanaman Lake First Nation. It's this community just surrounded by, by lakes. When I met him, he was, he was pretty badly sick, just like coughing and congested. And I said, why didn't you take the day off? And uh, he said, if I took the day off, there'd be no one else working. Angies told Edwards about one November night when he'd been off duty in Wanaman Lake in 2005. His father Moses had asked him to catch some walleye for dinner that evening and drop it off, but he never got a chance. Angie's ended up getting a call from his sister that their father hadn't come home, and so as the only police officer in the community, Constable Joseph Angie's had to go and look for him. Angie's was the only cop in the area. It was up to him alone to search for his father. He knew that Moses had a trapper's shack across the lake, so he scoured the area long into the night, searching for any sign of him. Nothing. The next day, after a grueling six-hour search in negative 20-degree weather, he finally came across a hole in the ice with a hat and a glove and a shoe floating on top. His father's snowmobile had fallen through the ice. What was even more sort of striking about it was that Angie's had to go back to work like the very next day. Like he had really no time to to mourn the passing of his father. He he just sort of put his dad's body on a snowmobile and, and took it back to the community. And I assume they had funeral services. And then next day he puts on his uniform and gets back out there. His story sort of embodied the experiences of other police officers I'd spoken to, stories of sort of dealing with family members and having to go through traumatic events and then having to really shake it off and get back out there again. It beats them down in a lot of ways, and, and it especially beats them down when they don't have the, the sort of support or resources that would be available to, say, someone working for the OPP in Southern Ontario. Because of the nature of his work, Angie's is practically always on duty. He said, you know, even when I'm not working, I'm sort of always on the job. People know who I am. They know where I live. They come knocking on my door. They call my cell phone at all hours of the night. It, it's very demanding. Angie's told Edwards that he'd had to routinely arrest his own family members, including his brother. Five years ago, the courts made him cease those arrests, citing conflict of interest. That type of difficult police work has led to intense burnout and even high rates of PTSD amongst NAPS officers. 
Even after the deadly fire in 2006, governments largely ignored the desperate pleas that NAPs receive adequate funding, and that neglect would once again result in tragedy. A coroner's inquest in Thunder Bay this week is hearing the tragic series of events that led to the death of a young First Nations woman. Lena Anderson was just 23 years old when she died by suicide in the back of a police vehicle in her remote community. Lena Anderson lived in the Casabonica Lake First Nation. One night in 2013, a NAPS officer, Jeremy Swanson, responded to a call about a party at her house where people were drinking alcohol. Like a lot of First Nation communities in northern Ontario, alcohol is banned in Casabonica. Lena was asleep, but her three-year-old daughter was awake and wandering around. They woke up Lena and found that she was a little bit drunk, but by no means incapacitated. Regardless, social workers attended and decided to apprehend Lena's daughter. They removed the daughter from the home, which you know really upset Anderson, and she was detained by by the NAPS officer, but she she wasn't charged. Swanson, who'd been working for 24 hours straight, took her to the local NAPS detachment. The detachment was was just, you just open a door and there it is. Like, that's all it was. It had one light. It had two rooms that were like closets. There were no windows, no cells. You know, if he needed to hold people in custody, they stayed in the truck overnight. Swanson handcuffed Lena Anderson inside his Ford F-150 and went inside to talk to a social worker. He had left her alone for only 16 minutes, but when he came back to check on her, Lena had hung herself with the drawstring of her pants. Unlike a lot of NAPS officers, Swanson wasn't an indigenous person and he wasn't from the local community. If he had been, he might have known that Lena Anderson had a history of suicide attempts. Maybe if he, he did know who she was, or maybe if he was a bit more, you know, experienced, or maybe if he did have an actual facility where he could put detainees and keep them there overnight, maybe that would have turned out differently. Swanson testified at Lena Anderson's coroner's inquest that after he had taken her body to the nursing station, word got around that she had died in police custody, and a number of her friends and relatives came to the NAPS detachment. And in his testimony, Swanson said that he didn't think he'd survive if he walked outside. And, you know, personally, that statement sort of bothered me when I read it. You know, characterizing these people as sort of like a mob that would attack him seems a little unfair. He was flown out of that community that night, and and he never returned. The next year, Swanson was hired by the York Regional Police. First Nation leaders sent a public safety notice to federal and provincial ministers that stated that those governments would, quote, be responsible legally and morally for future deaths that are caused by inadequate resources. Charlie Angus, the NDP MP for the area, raised the issue in the House of Commons. Mr. Speaker, last month a young woman committed suicide in the back of a police car at Casabonica First Nation. The police had been using the vehicle as a temporary holding cell because the jail was so run down that she would have frozen if they had kept her inside. This government promised to provide safe streets, but it has left NAP so underfunded that lives are being put at risk. Once again, nothing happened. Over the next three years, the Nishnabe Aski Police Service spiraled into a crisis. Officers were quitting, citing PTSD, squalid living conditions, and low pay. Two officers even committed suicide. 
In 2015, Alvin Fidler was elected Grand Chief of the Anishinaabeaski Nation, largely on a platform of police reform. Fidler had been one of the doubters when NAPS was created, predicting that it would be neglected by the Canadian state. He had been right, but he was determined to fix it. In 2015, when he was elected, he he had this you know grand mission to sort of build up NAPS and, and help sort of heal some of these wounds that were created. The next year, NAPS officers were threatening to go on strike or else quit en masse. Here's Jason Storkson, who was president of the NAPS union at the time, speaking to CTV. Now we're hoping that the government who wants a new relationship with the First Nations, they're talking all about it, how they're going to fix it and reconcile things. Well, this is it. We're, we're here. So reconcile it. There, it's a historical, systemic, racial underfunding. Why are we policing this way? Why are we underfunded? Why are our salaries 20% less? Like, the money is not a big factor, but it's just a, it's a shining light that two people doing the same job the only difference is that mine has a First Nations police flash on the shoulder. Grand Chief Alvin Fidler threatened to disband the police service and force the OPP to take over the jurisdiction, which would be far more costly to the provincial government. The pressure from Fidler, the NAPS officers, and the media was finally enough to get the government to do something. The Ontario provincial government pledged to bring NAPS under the Police Act and to provide it adequate funding to do its job. So what should we make of all of this? In 1994, the Anishinaabe Nation embarked on this grand experiment in Indigenous policing. Just over two decades later, the situation had gotten so bad that every single NAPS officer was threatening to quit. Should we just write this off as a failure? Well, there's one statistic that makes NAPS stand out from most other Canadian police forces that gives us a reason to think that it could still be a model for the future. Since it was founded, not a single Nishnabeaski police officer has shot and killed someone on duty. I think that's pretty remarkable. This is despite the fact that Northern Ontario has a far higher homicide rate than the South, and that guns are commonplace. It's fascinating because you can definitely tell that there's like a sort of culture that NAPS is trying to foster that is sort of different than what you might find at the OPP or the RCMP or the Toronto Police Service. Compare that with the RCMP in Nunavut. They have killed seven people since 2000, all of them Indigenous, and two within just the last year. Edward suspects that this disparity has to do with the fact that NAPS is an Indigenous-led police service. And so, you know, you get this sort of cast of people, many of them Native, who all sort of understand the historical relationship that that Indigenous people have had with police forces in Canada. And that doesn't mean they can't be criticized necessarily. That doesn't mean there can't be a critique of their work when something bad does happen. But there is certainly that desire to, to do something different. There's this distinction that some criminologists make between high and low policing. Here's Christian Luprecht again. That high policing is policing in the interests of the state. Low policing is policing in the interests of the communities. And I think in Canada, especially when it comes to to policing of Indigenous people and Indigenous communities, there is very much, I think, a perception that what the RCMP represents and engages in is high policing. 
And this is why you can get an RCMP commissioner who comes out and says that there's no systemic racism within the institution, even though we have multiple reports over multiple years that say exactly that. NAPS is in many ways an experiment in low policing. But because of the racist manner in which we starve indigenous institutions of funding in this country, that experiment was barely even given a chance to succeed. The promised regulations to bring NAPS up to par with other police services still haven't been implemented, though the Ford government has made assurances that everything's still on track. Kyle Edwards doesn't have all the answers when it comes to policing, but he knows that the people who have been held in dangerous, decrepit facilities in northern Ontario deserve better. I don't think people should be dying in fires because a detachment doesn't have smoke detectors or people should be dying in police cars because they can't find a holding cell to put them in for the night so they can sober up. These sort of things just seem so fundamental. And so while I can understand and wholly appreciate the conversation around defund the police, when I look back at this story, I think, well, these are things, you know, you kind of need to have. I think you sort of need to have these resources available so that people can be safe. If you've been listening to this series, you know the long, brutal history of policing in this country. But after 26 years and against overwhelming odds, the Nishnabe Aski Police Service has never shot and killed anyone, something that other police forces practically claim is impossible. Is that enough, though? Maybe the entire institution of policing is something we need to move beyond in the long run. But as we debate those even bigger questions, indigenous policing is something we cannot ignore. Governments in this country should be looking at these forces, their histories, and their successes very seriously. Maybe it's not the answer to everything that's wrong with how we police in this country, but it's a step in the right direction. That's your episode of Commons for the week. If you want to support us, please click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. And if you like our show, go give us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on reporting done by Kyle Edwards at McLean's, Wayne Roberts and Kenneth Jackson at APTN, Jody Porter at CBC News, Jennifer Tryon at Global News, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Dami Lola Oname. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. 
click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.